This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Hosea chapter 1. This is God's Word. Inspired, inerrant, authoritative in our lives. The Word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblaim and she conceived and bore him a son and the Lord said to him call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 8. Israel, she, she, Israel did not know That it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil. Who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. And my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. Now 
I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. May the Lord bless his word. Return to the Lord. Seek the Lord. That's, that's what I think the Lord wants to make the main point today from this book of Hosea and maybe from this series. Return to the Lord. Have you drifted from the Lord? Fear him like a believer. Hosea is a call to God's people to love him. What's in view is his great love. That's that's the message of Hosea, how much he loves his people. It's a message about the reality of God, and it's meant to encourage our faith and our hope in him alone. Through this ministry, this really amazing ministry of Hosea, God intends to speak a word to his people to keep his relationship. Keep it passionate. Keep it real. We, we are living in uncertain days, days filled with trouble. There's many reasons for fear and anxiety, but they aren't necessarily days characterized by the fear of the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples at the end of his earthly ministry, the Son of Man, Jesus, 
is, is coming again in a cloud with power and great glory. He said as he was leaving them, his, his second coming is going to come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. He gave them signs that would point to his return. And he told them, when these things start to take place, your redemption is drawing near. The kingdom of God is near. He wanted his people, his disciples, to be prepared. Watch yourselves, he said, lest your hearts be weighed down with overindulgence, drunkenness with the cares of this life, and that day come on you like a trap suddenly. Stay awake. Pray that you may have strength. I am hoping this series of messages this summer, the pastoral team is hoping that it's going to be a wake-up call for us, a good wake-up call. So we'll be prepared for his return as individuals and as a church. Wake-up calls are good things, I think. We don't always like them, but they... I think they're good. I used to get them regularly when I was in high school. It's hard to imagine in, in the days we live in a time when public school teachers spanked their, their students. Our cultural context has shifted very dramatically, and this would be unthinkable today. We know that there are troubled adults at best. They're troubled who physically abuse children. So there, there are understandable concerns that would mean this isn't a wise policy today. And my point isn't to bring back the practice. My point is that me and my friends back in the day, we, we received many well-deserved whacks from teachers and coaches who genuinely liked us. They were trying to save our souls from hell. The result was we respected them, and their, their correction kept us from, from worse mistakes. We were headed down the wrong path. A good whack served me back in the day. Many is the day when I was bent over, placed my hands on the teachers of the principal, not not principal, princa, he's your pal, principal, on his desk and received a whack with a board that was proudly, usually proudly displayed in the classroom or the office, big board with usually holes so it'd be very aerodynamic <laughs> and nice inspiring statements that were meant to scare you that you did not want that board. Many of the day, I got a whack from a loving adult, and it was a good thing. This summer series on the Mitre Prophets is probably going to mean some discipline. It's probably going to mean a, a whack. So one of the reasons that we chose this series is for that purpose. It prepares us for the return of the Lord. It encourages in us the fear of God. The fear of the Lord that is John Murray, the great Reformed theologian, said the soul of godliness, the heart of godliness, is this fear of the Lord. It's, it's a fear that only believers have. Only believers 
understand. It's not a bad fear. We delight, like Nehemiah said, in the fear of the Lord. It's awe, it's amazement, it's wonder at His infinite greatness and His love for us. So I hope, we hope, we're doing this series, 12 Minor Prophets. They're called minor, not because of their message, because it's a minor message. They're called minor because of their length. It's a major message. And what led us to choose this series is that these 12 prophets affirm God's love and the horrific nature of sin, of drifting from our communion with them. And we need this. We need whacked once in a while. The Lord is drawing close to us, I hope, this summer through this series. All right, let me give you, first of all, some background, some context. You can have a donut, just take a nap if you'd like, but it's important that we set the stage for this. God's plan for history until Jesus came was that the nation of Israel would be the central focus of God's saving work. Before he called Abraham as the father of the nation of Israel and established his covenant with him, God had dispersed all the peoples of the world over the face of all the earth, according to Genesis 11, and created a world of nations and different languages. Paul says in Acts 17, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God created the nations. And with the call of Abraham into a relationship with him, Israel became the focus of God's involvement with all the nations. Israel would become a great nation, and Israel would be a blessing to all the nations. That's what we learn in the Old Testament. It's the focus of the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, it changes as far as the nations goes. The focus is different. The people of God today are joined together in the church, capital C. The church universal, not just this local church, but all the churches. The people of God are joined together in the church and they come from every nation of the world. It's not one nation. The church is made up of everyone who trusts in Christ. There's not one single ethnic, political, or national identity for the people of God. In the Old Testament, the visible people of God was an, an ethnic, political, geographic nation. God made a covenant with, an agreement with, the nation of Israel. They had their own kings. They had their own land. But in the New Testament, the visible people of God is the church. And it includes thousands of different ethnic and political and geographic groups. The church is not a political state. So one of the reasons we're doing this series in the Old Testament is because we want you to be able to put your Bible together. It, I think it's going to help us understand the New Testament 
We understand the Old Testament. This is these minor prophets. And even when you read this this morning, you're like, now what now? But it's the Word of God. And we want to spend time to try to understand this because God has miraculously given us a book. A book that is His Word. It's, it's an amazing book. And I commend it to you. And I think studying these minor prophets is going to really encourage your opinion of Holy Scripture. In our English Bibles, the minor prophets consist of 12 separate books. But in the Hebrew Bible, the minor prophets, they, they were put together in one scroll. They were one book, the book of the 12. In our English Bibles, they're at the end of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, they were kind of in the middle. They were after the law, the first five books of the Bible. And they were before the writings, what are called the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ruth, Job, etc. And it, these 12 minor prophets, along with the major prophets, kind of provided commentary, theological commentary on how the nation of Israel was doing in relation to the law and their relationship with the Lord. They, they urge Israel to go back to their roots, to go back to the law of God, to fear God, to trust Him. Stephen Dempster says this. He's an Old Testament scholar. The, the inclusion of 12 prophets in one scroll ensured that they sang together, not only in physical unison, but also in theological Harmony, what the Bible says about God, harmony. Although each of the 12 had different parts to sing in the prophetic choir, it's a nice picture, they all followed the same conductor conveying his message. Furthermore, when we listen to their voices together, we hear far more than if we listen only to the individual parts. So that's what we're trying to do this summer. Put all these parts together. There are th these 12 prophetic books are not in a chronological sequence in your Bibles. In other words, when they were prophesying in history, they're, they're put together skillfully by a compiler who had a reason for putting them where they are. They had different themes or different theological emphases, and the compiler had a reason for putting Hosea first. And that's why we're going to start there. Hosea is first. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom. Israel was split at one point. We notice that in verse 1. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about the kings of Judah and the king of Israel. And then in chapter 2, it, the Lord said that he was going to discipline Israel, the northern kingdom, but bless Judah, which would have been salt in the wound for the northern kingdom. Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom before they're destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. They've prospered, and now they're beginning to decline. And he's explaining why, because they're confused about it. All right, so we are going to look at the first three chapters of Hosea this morning. 
Because if you understand the first three chapters, you will understand the book of Hosea. So we're just going to focus on the first three chapters. And we're going to have three points. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Israel was an unfaithful wife. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Not exactly a politically correct text today, I don't think. But it's filled with truth. This is God's word. The point is, Israel has a faithful husband. And she is unfaithful to him. He is charging Israel with unfaithfulness. His message is that the Lord is withdrawing his love from them because they've drifted from their relationship with the Lord. It's calling us back to our relationship with God. Ray Ortland, our, our friend in Nashville, wrote this, all other relational claims must yield to the primacy of marital union. It requires an exclusive, lifelong bonding of one man with one woman in one life fully shared. It erects barriers around the man and woman, and it destroys all barriers between the man and the woman. It's marriage. God so joins them together that they belong fully to one another and to one another only. This is the vision of human marriage, which provides the coherent network of meanings necessary. That's why I read this quote, for an understanding of Israel's, the, covenant, the nation God had a covenant with, Israel's relationship with Yahweh, the, the Lord, the covenant name God revealed to Moses, the Lord, as the story unfolds in the rest of Scripture. You have to understand the, the primacy of that Marriage relationship. The biblical view of marriage is really necessary. Old and New Testament to understand redemption in Christ. You have to understand, you have to have a biblical view of what marriage is. It's a profound revelation of the relationship between the Lord and His people. It's one of many reasons Christians can't compromise on what they believe about marriage. It's about the Lord. It's in Scripture. He created marriage and He had a reason. And it pictures for us what it means to know God and what it means to walk with Him. I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for decades. And I have sadly had a front row seat to adultery, to observing the devastating effect of adultery. Some of you in here have been affected by adultery in one way or another, and even the topic is difficult for you. And I understand. I've been there. I've watched. 
I am very grateful by the grace of God that I've never committed adultery. My wife has never committed adultery, but I have had a front row seat. And we need to consider this. The terrible, terrible hurt. I hope it just keeps people from committing adultery. Just to think about it. There's nothing like the pain and the hurt that they're caused when someone you love betrays your trust. You, you need to feel this to understand the message of Hosea. What sticks in my mind is the weeping, the devastation, not only the victims of adultery, but also those who have committed adultery. And when it hits them, how foolish it was. The consequences, there's no going back. What Hosea says is when you love the world... When you tolerate idols in your life, and that is a New Testament term too, it's, it's about desires in your heart that begin to rule you, that grab your affections. These idols matter to God, and Hosea pulls up a chair in our living room today and says to us, when you do this, when you love the world, you commit spiritual adultery in your heart. And what's striking is how foolish adultery always is because it's brief, it's superficial, and it damages something exactly the opposite, something deep with eternal consequences. And what's striking is that the Lord chose this reality to communicate the effect of sinful desires that wage war in our soul. That's how serious he thinks this is. And the message of Hosea is that Israel didn't commit adultery once. Israel was a prostitute. She was married to a faithful, loving husband, the Lord. But she was a prostitute. That's the message. Verse 2 is an ugly, shocking accusation. The land commits great whoredom, great prostitution. That's what shaped Hosea's ministry, Israel's pursuit of other gods. They weren't really gods. Baal, they were idols. And Hosea is going to make the message emphatic through his own heartache as a husband married to a woman he loves who is a prostitute. That's part of the package. This is not just a superficial marriage. You are to love this woman, Gomer. But she's a prostitute. Verse 3, so he went, he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived. She bore him a son. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. They have a, they have a son, and the name 
is a prophetic name that says disaster's coming. Jezreel was kind of like Pearl Harbor or Wounded Knee. It was, there had been an infamous, notorious massacre there. And so the name meant there's going to be a massacre in Israel. The, the press, pressing issue of the day for the nation of Israel, from their perspective, was not our relationship with the Lord. We've drifted from the Lord. We need to go back. That was not what they thought the problem was. They thought the problem was political. Assyria was rising up and conquering nations, and they were coming towards Israel. And they were going to conquer Israel. It was clear. It was coming. So they thought the problem is political. We've got to do something. They were talking to Egypt about an alliance. They, they, they talked about buying off Assyria, paying them. This was their passion. Political solutions. That's what they were after. That's what they feared. They did not trust God. They, they denied the adequacy of his care and his protection. They didn't turn to the Lord. The problem is they're unfaithful to him. The problem isn't political. It's not a weak military. It's not economic. Israel's an unfaithful wife. Israel has shared her love with the Baals. And now her lawful husband says, no more mercy. question is, does Israel love the Lord? The Lord loves Israel. Israel wasn't concerned about her relationship with the Lord. Again, Ray Ortland, flitting about like a frightened bird, panicky Israel does not turn to the one true source of strength and security. The spiritual answers and resources offered in the covenant seemed unreal in the face of visible dangers. Faith seemed irrelevant and God seemed remote. Whack. Is your hope in politics? Where's your hope? What are you afraid of? What are you worried about? Are you meditating on kind of the issues of the day too much and neglecting God's word? Am I? Nothing wrong with being involved politically. A case can be made. We should be involved at some level. It's a great privilege to be able to vote. We should know the issues. We should look at the candidates. It's important we do that. We should evaluate with a biblical worldview. But it's so easy today, isn't it? Just to get our... Our little hearts go in the wrong direction. What do we talk about? What do we do the first thing in the morning? That's what Hosea is about. Are we drifting from the Lord? It's so easy to do. Verse 6. She conceived again, bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. 
But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. The Lord has changed the way he will now relate to Israel. Israel. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, in case you're looking for a name for your baby, (laughs) she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people. This is Israel. In the Old Testament, this is shocking. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Gomer's third child is used by the Lord to announce the breakup, public divorce. Listen, sin is not just the violation of a rule. It's about a relationship. Do you think of the Old Testament as focusing on this kind of relationship? Just picture the Lord's great love for his people. It has great relevance to us. The Lord loves His church. He loves His people. He's drawing us to Him this morning by displaying His great love, His passion. It's an amazing book. It's an amazing truth. He's using the metaphor of marriage and adultery to communicate to us His great love for us. He wants us. Point two, chapter two. Three verses in chapter two sum up the tragedy of Israel. Verse five. Verse five. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Verse 8, she did not know that it was I, the Lord, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Are you aware all these good things are from the Lord? Verse 13, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. They were celebrating Baal for what the Lord had done in their lives. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers, other gods, and forgot me, declares the Lord. God wants to be her husband, but she's a prostitute. She loves all these other gods. All she has, she gets from her true husband, but she thinks she's getting it from the Baals. And Hosea is a living picture for her. This is what you're doing. And now your true husband is going to punish you. Israel isn't a prostitute that's pursued by other men. She pursues men. She thinks they can give her what she wants. So she pursues them. Her lovers are her idols. She's, she's failed the test of prosperity. She doesn't understand where this prosperity comes from. She gives her idols credit for all her happiness, for all her abundance. 
She thought Baal could bless her crops and Baal could give her children. She wanted worldly things. She she didn't desire the kingdom of God and his righteousness. She wanted what the Baals promised. All the other nations around them, that's that's how they live. I I want a good crop. And that's where Israel picked this up. This is how you get it. She wanted the wrong things. She went to bed with the Baals to gratify her worldly desires. That was Israel. You may be experiencing at times difficult circumstances. And many times this can be the Lord's discipline in our lives. It can be the Lord correcting us. It's an important, adversity is actually evidence that you're a child of God. The Lord will use adversity to train us. He will use the discipline of adversity in, in the lives of people that he loves. Hebrews 12, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines them because he wants them to share his holiness. So being a child of God is always accompanied by adversity. Here's what Paul Tripp says. Consider God's agenda. God's not working to deliver to you your personal definition of happiness. If you're on that agenda page, you're going to be disappointed with God. And you're going to wonder if he loves you. God is after something better. Your holiness. That is the final completion of his redemptive work in you. Which includes deep and abiding happiness in him. You want that. The difficulties you face are not in the way of God's plan. They don't show the failure of God's plan. And they're not signs he has turned his back on you. No, those tough moments are a sure sign of the zeal of his redemptive love for you. The message of Hosea is how much he loves you. And the Lord wants us to see he brought discipline into the nation of Israel for their good, to draw them back to their true husband. And he wants us this morning to recognize that adversity and difficulties are sure signs that God loves you. Verse 9, chapter 2, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, And I will take away my wool and my wax, which were to cover her nakedness. Israel's failed the test of prosperity, and the Lord is saying, it's mine. This is mine. This didn't come from the Baals, and you have it because I've blessed you. Israel's actions demand that the Lord respond. She doesn't understand where true fulfillment comes from. She doesn't get this. John Calvin says, it's an inexcusable stupidity. (laughs) It's inexcusable. This is Israel, God's covenant nation. And she doesn't understand. She doesn't know the Lord. She forgot the Lord. 
inexcusable stupidity. The issue is the sufficiency of our all-sufficient God. Can he be trusted alone? Again, Ray Ortland, where does life and all its richness and fullness come from? Does it come from Yahweh, the Lord, alone? Or from Yahweh, the Lord, plus others? The folk theology permeating Israel at this time obscured the clarity of of pure Judaism, of pure religion. By mingling the alternatives together in one dimly perceptible theological blur. They, They were... They didn't see the truth about God. They didn't see and think right about their bad situation. They thought trusting God was not practical. And yet the truth was, trusting God was the solution. And that's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Point three, chapter three. Chapter one, the Lord called Hosea... To marry a woman who was a prostitute. And now, after all her unfaithfulness, he calls him to marry her again. (laughs) Marry this wayward wife again. Most of us, if we're Hosea, we say, no. But it's a picture. Hosea is a picture Of the steadfast love of the Lord for you. Isn't it good news to know today? That the Lord will never let you go. Thus saith the Lord through the book of Hosea. The emphasis is the steadfast love of the husband. Look in verse 1 chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now that's striking, isn't it? It's supposed to be. You think, cakes of raisins? Really? Well, that's the point. It's so ridiculous what has drawn their hearts away, it's so minimal. The Lord deeply loves his people, but they love cakes of raisins. Her her love is oddly misplaced. We, We should think this morning, what is it we love? Gomer's human marriage is to picture for our imagination the ultimate reality of the Lord's mercies. Toward Israel, toward us, towards his church, towards his people. Israel's going to suffer exile. There'll be no king, no prince, no sacrifices, no household gods. They're going to get whacked. The Lord will seem remote. Life will be hard to bear. But in the end, God's people will return to the Lord. Their true God. And they will do it with all their hearts by the grace of God. The Lord's calling us to return to Him. And we will return to Him by grace. That's the message. Look in 
Chapter 11, in conclusion, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. You often see this in Scripture, this tension between the Lord's justice and His mercy. It's settled in Christ. The tension is resolved. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. The Lord will show Himself abundant in blessing and grace. Again, our buddy Ray says, safe to say this grand prophetic vision leaves Baal completely behind. The Lord is so good. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me. It occurs three times. Chapter 2, verse 19, I will betroth you to me three times for emphasis. I will do it. That's the grace of God. Verse 20, you shall know the Lord by the grace of God. And in that day, Hosea 2, verse 21, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. They shall answer, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is the Lord calling us back to him. Let's close in prayer and say, you are my God. Lord, we bow our heads today at such a great gift that you have given us in your grace. We thank you, Lord, that the tension between your your justice and your mercy has been resolved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's no tension, Lord, for you accomplish in us what you desire by your grace. And you make us this morning, Lord, to fear you, to delight in the fear of the Lord. May this church, may every individual with us this morning and watching via the live stream, Lord, may we be transformed by the grace of God so that we fear you and love you and serve you and delight in you and are faithful to you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.